Coming up on Office Hours with Carp and Loge, it is our last episode before going on hiatus. So Dave complains about APSA, sure. Uh, and we talk bigger picture about what it takes from political communicators to actually defend this thing called democracy and the institutions we rely upon. Some big picture stuff here. We're kind of proud of it. Check it out. Welcome, people of the pod, to the- Pod people. Pod people. <laughs> <laughs> this will be Dave's acting out episode. Welcome to the, the final episode of the current run of Office Hours with Carp and Loge going on hiatus, going back for temporary temporary guest appearances and places. As always on this podcast, I'm Peter Loge, an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. And I'm joined as always, at least, at least for now, by... <laughs> Folks, I am Dave Karp, Associate Professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs. Uh, this is Office Hours with Karp and Loge, uh, until Loge stops having office hours and I guess stops caring about his students because he's director. Hours <laughs> going to his head and he is sunsetting this pod. To be very clear, we are not ending the podcast. We are putting on a hiatus. Uh, I have promised and, and Peter's promised that we'll bring it back as soon as he's not director anymore. So uh, we'll see how quickly I can uh, run him out of the job. I'm all about a quick turn of that, but we are we are coming up for special episodes. For example, mm -hmm. in early October, we're going to be at the rescheduled Buzz Advocacy Summit in Annapolis, Maryland, October 2nd through 4th. I'll put this in the footnotes, which I'll get to in a second. This is a, a, an event put on by the Beekeeper Group, a communications firm here in town. It had to be delayed, as many of you know, because of a, a tragic death of, of one of their uh, key employees earlier this summer. So we're, we're glad it's been rescheduled. Our hearts really do still go out to the folks at Beekeeper. We look forward to joining you live in Annapolis on October 4th. And who knows, who knows what else will happen. But this is the end of the regular biweekly uh, Loge and Carp ranting into the void. Just to be clear, because I feel like people get what we're implying here, but we should make it explicit. Um, we're putting this on hiatus and then two months later doing a live show. Uh, this means that we do bar mitzvahs, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, we do bar yeah. mitzvahs. Bar weddings, mitzvahs, weddings, weddings. Funerals, yeah. funerals. Yeah. Funerals, I think we should do those. I think we should do those. You got Arbor Day. <laughs> I, You're like I a viral guy. I feel like we should do the Arbor Day tour. I, I have often thought of these podcast conversations with you as funerals. So, yeah, yeah we'll do those. Yeah, we'll the funerary tone uh -huh. to them. Yeah. I think we do. We do. I, weeks ago, we talked about a piece, I think, from The New Yorker about the, these niche pop stars or any pop star, really, who makes make incredible amounts of money by playing private shows, birthday parties and that sort of thing. And I think I think that's just our our gig. We can liven up nearly anything, nearly anything. We can't save <laughs> except your, a faculty meeting, except a faculty. No, that would that would end badly for everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think otherwise other and that and, and six year olds on Dinosaur Camp, I feel like that's one we just could not have. Can, uh, can assault it, can assault it. Anyway, let's get to the material. Let's get to the good stuff. So we've got, uh, first, first on the footnotes, um, I did not put them up two weeks ago and nobody complained and I'm lazy, so I didn't do it. But I will, I'll do last week, so two weeks ago and, and this week's. And I also do need, this is a humbling correction, an embarrassing correction. I love this. I kept talking about uh, professors and thinkers encouraging students to think and be punished for it and being ridden out of town and all of that. And I kept name checking Aristotle when, of course, it was Socrates, Socrates who drank hemlock um, with Aristotle. Aristotle then went on to train other rhetors and, and leaders, but it was clearly it was Socrates is who I meant. And I'm like, Peter Loge 
confused Aristotle and Socrates. He is shamed for the next 17 generations of his family. I am. Also, luckily, I don't, don't have kids, kids so that's Luckily, no kids. But my God. Peter, I like, if I confuse those two, that's fine. Because who are we kidding? You confuse those two. Yeah. Amazing. That's like me mixing up Schatzneider and anyone. I... <laughs> I almost, I own, this is true. I couldn't sleep the night. I felt incredibly bad. I almost asked us to retape it and delay it. But then I know that would only open me for, for more abuse. And again, nobody probably yeah. noticed. Also, I, I never would have let us retape that because that's gold. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. There's yeah. that. It was, it was the point remains. And we're going to talk about this a lot in the, in the heart of the pod though, that people afraid of young people thinking uh, people afraid of college professors uh, punishing those professors is not a new thing. Again, read I F Stone's The Trial of Socrates. But mm-hmm. but you've got a couple of cats and dogs before we get to why we need to play offense and stop the absurd assaults on all that is just and right in the world. Yeah, I. So I want to take a minute to complain about APSA. Um, you need to explain so to gonna, people what that what that means. Yeah, yeah. So APSA is American Political Science Association. Uh, it is my main professional association. Uh, I am going to the APSA uh, annual meeting next month, and there's been some debates over whether or not one should do so. And this is a complicated issue, and I'm going to give you the short version of it because I think there's a comms lesson here. Like the thing that's been bugging me is, I think there needs to be space for allies to be good guys, even if they're not going all the way with the strongest demands that you make. The details here are that the APSA convention was scheduled to be in LA this year, Los Angeles. Uh, It's at the LA Convention Center. And the main conference hotel is the Sheridan. And uh, the Sheridan is now facing a, a labor action. It's facing a strike, as are many, many hotels in LA. So the question came up once the strike started a month ago, once the contract ran out with no new contract, the point came up that hey, uh, we're not crossing a picket line to go to APSA, um, which to be clear, yeah, I'm not crossing a picket line to go to APSA. APSA, APSA means important to me, but it's not that important. And the, the union came out with a statement saying, uh, we are asking APSA to either get everything out of all of those hotels, cancel the hotel blocks, like, you know, full, full break, or else cancel the meeting and move it online. The APSA council, which in my experience, tends to end up in the right place and tends to be really sloppy in getting there. I saw this with the John Eastman stuff that they ended up in the right place and the amount of headaches and sort of self-inflicted wounds were just like, I don't, like, I think they're well-meaning and not very good at crisis comms. So like I got annoyed with them a bunch of times because they didn't communicate well, but they got to the right place, like hats off for that. But they issued some like pretty sloppy statements that got people very mad, but then went ahead and put in the work moved everything out of the Sheridan, uh, set it up so that one can attend APSA without crossing any picket lines, without entering any hotels that are under a labor action. And the thing they weren't able to do was cancel the actual room blocks because it was by then it was within a month of the conference and the contract said, like, you, like people don't need to take those room blocks, but you can't actually cancel them at that point. And they noted in their statement that in order to cancel the conference or move it virtual at this point, uh, there's a bunch of contracts that they would have to cancel that would cost them about like $3 million in cancellation fees. They don't really have the budget for that, so they were going to try not to do that. But they, they put in the work to make sure that APSA was not going to be forcing anyone to cross a picket line, that they themselves would not be violating the picket line. And once they did that, and I was able to find a, a hotel in a, um, a, a hotel room in a hotel that has a, a contract, I said, okay, good, I'm going. And then the, the union came back and a bunch of APSA supporters who 
are strongly pro-labor came back and said, no, that's not good enough. They said you have to cancel and move online. Cancel or move online. NAFSA kind of responded saying, guys, we, we did everything we can kind of do here. We're not going to spend, we're, we're not going to pay $3 million in fees and probably face some lawsuits for canceling all these contracts when we've already made it. So no one has to cross picket line. And the response was, okay, you're anti-labor. And that, that, that just, like, I think we have to be able to have space to say, you can be pro-labor without costing your organization $3 million that aren't getting paid to anyone in the actual fight. Like, the, the contract is not with APSA. The APSA is not party to this. They were just having the convention in a big city where the hotels decided that they wanted to screw over their workers. I think it's important not to cross the picket line. And I also think if the union wants to make a stronger demand, I can respect that demand while also saying, guys, that, that's actually a little too far. None of us are going to cross the picket line, but we're not going to cancel the thing entirely. But I've been watching on what's left of, of uh, Twitter, and there's not very much of it left, but I've been watching on what's left of Twitter, people trying to make this up as this, make this out as po- a polarized issue where you're either pro-labor and therefore hating APSA and refusing to ever attend, or you're anti-labor and you know in with the, the plutocrats because you're willing to attend the conference. Um, and just sort of the, the lack of uh, room for solidarity without going to full extremes and making demands of organizations that, I mean, like it, if I was on the app support, like I wouldn't say, yeah, let's just burn $3 million of our budget to show some solidarity. Like, of, of course not. As a fiduciary, you kind of can't do that. So the whole thing just sort of stuck out of me as an example of comms demands where if you're not leaving any room for allies to be good, but not great, then you make everybody into enemies. And I don't know, man, like that's, that bugs me. I think, I think you raise a really good point. And this raises a couple other things in the context of other communication strategies. One is the lack of nuance in any debate at all. You're either all of A or all of B. There's no in between. The second is let people agree with you. Right. Yeah. Let somebody say, I'm not going to cross the picket line. You can applaud a little bit. That's great. We'll give you B, not the A. We're going to give you B for being with us. Let them come with you and then bring them with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Too often people say, Oh, you know, wow. Now I see the light. Trump really is a lunatic. Yeah, you should have been here five years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah, but but take them now. Like again, yeah. let people agree with you. Build momentum. Build power. Don't use it as an opportunity to bunker. Bunkering is a bad comm strategy and it's bad political strategy. Like you can't actually then solve problems. You end up you end up sort of dissolving the social tissue we we all need. So there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. This was from. Uh, the New York Times on, on August the 5th, big piece, global web of Chinese propaganda leads to a U.S. tech mogul. This intense New York Times investigation looked at a, a U.S. Uh, investor. He built a software company, sold it for a ton of money. And he's been seeding and sending money to a lot of really progressive groups like Code Pink. Mm-hmm. And it's been sort of diffuse. There isn't a cornerstone, right? There isn't, you know, the, the CARP Institute for a Better America or something. In addition to promoting all these really progressive things that all my progressive friends would agree with, like Code Pink, they've been pushing out pro-Chinese government messaging, mm-hmm. including excu- excusing um, the human rights violations against the Uyghurs and and others. Mm-hmm. And this raises two. This raises a huge ethical question, I think, for my for 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 advocates, but also an interesting strategic case study. One of the first is the ethical question. One of the first questions you have to ask as an advocate is, whose money will you take? Right. Mm-hmm. How bad 
can somebody be before you say no? And how big a check are you willing to turn down? This is related to the APSA question. Like how much money is on the table? What are the stakes? How good is good enough? Right? And if it's 100% pure, then you got to be ready to not take a lot of money. And that means all my good liberal friends now have to walk away from all of this and quit Code Pink and anything else this guy has, has supported. You say, no, 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 on balance, we'll sort of the Chinese stuff. He's not coordinating officially with the government, all of that. In that case, so, okay, cool. So are you willing to take Coke money? Because Coke is funding civil society, civil discourse, good things, institution building, which we believe, and being climate deniers. Mm-hmm. So which way are you going to have it? And again, as with APSA and Unite here, like how good is good enough? When right. when is it be good enough? This is an mm-hmm. incredibly important ethical question, um, and and also becomes an interesting strategic question. The bigger strategic piece of this article, which again I'm going to put in the footnotes on PeterLunch.com and uh, on Medium, is one way we run that these campaigns are being run, which is something we're going to talk about in a minute. Is it it is diffuse? It's a group mm-hmm. of organizations around the world that appear to be completely disconnected. They have some overlapping board members. They've got one overlap, some overlapping funders, one big one in particular, who just echo each other, mm-hmm. right? They're, it's different names on the letterhead. It's different Twitter handles or X handles or whatever they are at this point. But it's it's the same messaging, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of promoting the same drumbeat, which is strategically much more effective because now it's just kind of background noise. But do you hear that? Oh yeah, of course, everybody's saying that rather than being able to dismiss it as just one more piece of nonsense from AEI or Coke or pick your favorite liberal group, Code Pink or whatever it is. So ethical question. And I also think strategic lesson worth, this article is worth a read. Yeah. The, the thing I would add on that is you're right. It's an, it's an ethical question. And it's also one that forces us to grapple with the ebb and flow of money, right? Like it is, I think a lot easier to say, I will not take that money that with a capital C, you know, whatever we're talking about. When your budget is flush or growing, then when it's shrinking. And because that's when you're asking yourself, okay, we can take some money that I don't feel great about. And even if it's not coming with direct strings now, is going to leave us beholden to people we'd not like to be beholden to. Or we can stop being, or we can stop doing important work that we continue to think is important. Right? Like, it, it would be nice on it would be a nice in an ideal world to not have to make that choice. But when you are staring at that specific choice, that's when you're kind of deciding which of these things is organizational muscle and which of these things is organizational bone. Now, like what are the things that are so critical that we need to keep on doing them? And what sacrifices are we going to make? And if we're talking in the nonprofit world, since you are not revenue generating organizations, that's not what you are judged upon. Eventually, you're going to be in a spot where budgets are, are shrinking. And that's where you need to be real clear on what your ethical red lines are, because it just went from an easy decision to say, you know what, we're going to forsake that money. We don't like how it looks. We don't like where it's going to head to, oh, wow, there's a real trade-off that we're going to face this year. There are people we're going to need to fire. There's going to be critical work that we're not going to do. Which thing is more important to us? That's not to say you always take the money. You don't always take the money. But I think it's, it's very easy from when you're not the person making that decision to just say like, yeah, you know what? Like I would draw red, I would draw red lines all over. Like I've only got one marker. It is red. Let's start drawing. When you're actually faced with the the low times of, okay, then we're going to need to cut something that we already do that we believe in. 
that's when everything gets a lot harder and you need to be clear on what are the real red lines, not just the optical red lines. I think there are two pieces to that. One is those choices, as you say, get super hard about what we're not going to do. And it's not just activity, right? It's Mm -hmm. who is going to suffer because of what we're not doing, Hmm. right? Is it fewer school lunches? Is it um, less, is it fewer feminine hygiene projects, um, products? Is it less advocacy for climate? What specifically won't happen? And when you talk about laying people off, like budgets get cut, you lay people off. They're not people in the abstract, right? It's Dave and Dave has kids. Or it's the, the young person who just graduated from the School of Media and Public Affairs at GW, well-trained, eager, interesting, smart, hire them, please hire them, who went to a school that costs, if you pay the full price, $75,000 a year. You let them go because you have an idea of what's pure and right and just. Kid can't pay student loans, can't make rent. Mm-hmm. And that kid has a name and a family and like a dog. Like these are real choices. So the time to make these choices, as you say, Dave, is not when times are tight or mm-hmm. not even necessarily when times are flush. Decide ahead of time. These are my values. These are the criteria. These are how I'll make my decisions. So when you're rich, you can decide whose money and not to take using the same criteria as when you're poor. The time to decide to make a hard decision is not when you're in a hard spot. We need to get to the heart of it because we're running out of time. And this is, this is, this is pissing me off, Dave. Um, you're not I know, I know it's a, it's, That's my thing. It's, Why are you still like vibe? What's going on? It's a, it's a family show. I shouldn't be using such strong language, but, but sir, the stakes are high. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we, two weeks Sorry, ago, Columbo. I just, just one thing puzzles me. Just one, just a thing. If you do this on Zoom, the Zoom looks kind of cool. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about attacks on fundamental democratic institutions and specifically attacks on, on our friends and colleagues and researchers looking at mis- and disinformation online and the need for academics to start playing offense and to make the case for what they're doing and why it's relevant and real in the world. And we promise to get real specific in this episode. So we're going to. And I want to kick it off by, again, looking to the New York Times, a piece that ran on August 7th. Headline is GOP contenders feed voter distress in courts, schools and military. And the article, which, again, is really well worth a read, points out that trust in public institutions has been has been declining. Republicans are attacking these institutions, all of which is then undermining support for these institutions. You cannot continually and relentlessly attack institutions on which we rely and expect those institutions to survive. My first boss in Congress used to say, whenever we'd write these myths of saying those people in Washington, you cannot burn down a house and expect to occupy it. Mm-hmm. And we can't hope that democracy will out. Oh, but it'll be fine because we're enlightened and enlightened democracy. Like, you know, nobody woke up one morning and thought, Rousseau, it's learned, it's practiced, it's promoted. We've got to make the case for strong institutions that are willing to learn and get better and grow with us in order for democracy to survive. And it's time for academics, for the business community, for the press, for everybody involved to start playing offense and stop either hoping to hit the kid in the ugly pants and not you wearing the ugly hat or hope that these guys go away because they're not. They're attacking you because it raises money, gets them on TV and gets some clicks. They have to be punished or they will not stop. And democratic institutions 
will continue to be threatened, and that ends very, very badly. Yeah. The, so the thing I want to connect this to is a, an, an essay that I've written. Uh, this is in an essay I wrote a while back, and it's also a talk I used to give that I titled "World Without Wizards." And and in that, the the key sort of the key concept that I tried to raise up is that I think on, on the grand scale, the the debate that we've been waging over the past few years has not been between left and right, but between it's simple and it's complicated. And the, the from a comms perspective, the, the sad thing is that it's simple is a much easier story, right? So we see this with I mean, going dating back to Trump, though he still does it today, but you saw this so clearly in, in Trump 2016, where the story he was telling was the reason why your life isn't the way you want it to be is that the government is full of crooks and idiots, Bring me in. I'm going to fire the crooks and idiots, and then things will be better. And that's that's a really com- like that, that's a really comforting story. Like, would that were true? And it has as supporting evidence that there are sometimes crooks and idiots in government. Like, it's not free of them. Um, right. The other camp, the other side, argues that government and governance is fundamentally complicated and hard, uh, and that what we need is strong institutions filled with people who are doing their best, and tomorrow we'll try to do a bit better. That then promises that if you elect this government, they will try to do better and things will hopefully get slightly better along the way. That is, from a public narrative perspective, utter shit. Like that's that's a not a compelling story. And it unfortunately is actually true. So that that's the distinction. Like the easiest thing in the world is to shit on all institutions because that is an easy, compelling story to tell. It will get you clicks. It will get you TV time. Like the, there are short run successes that come from that. And the problem is that since it is based fundamentally on a narrative lie, when you burn down all institutions, what you are left with is just a heaping wreckage. And that means, coming back to your point, the only way to defend this stuff is to recognize that the fundamental story that we are telling happens to be true and is also a tough sell. And so we need to unite behind the the fundamental claim that, yeah, government and governance is complicated and hard and it takes work. Now, the, the one caveat I would put in there is when there are crooks and idiots, one ought to like one, one ought to rhetorically assault them. Right. Like I would say it is a good idea to challenge the legitimacy of this Supreme Court because they are acting in illegitimate ways and it is for the best that they knock that off. That like I don't think it's a problem when you challenge the legitimacy of the government because legit, you see a real problem there. But one should do that, like one should only undermine the legitimacy of institutions rhetorically when what you're trying to call out is that what the, their behavior is ruinously bad. Otherwise, what we need to do is be trying to build institutions that are worth the public trust, because otherwise you don't get to have a large society. Government and governance are just too goddamn complex. So I, I absolutely a couple of things. So back to the Times piece, to your point about incentives, quoting here, there's little doubt about the political incentives behind the statements. These are the ones attacking the IRS, the FBI, the military, you name it. Polls show that Americans' trust in their institutions has fallen to historical lows, with Republicans exhibiting more doubt across the broad swath of public life. The proliferation of attacks has alarmed both Republicans and Democrats who worry about the long-term impact on American democracy. Public confidence in core institutions, from the justice system to voting systems, is fundamental to a durable democracy, particularly at a time of sharp political division. 
And it isn't just true in large democracies. This is also true in smaller democracies. As mm-hmm. our regular listener, I'm going to be optimistic, listeners, plural. No, I, I do a lot of work with the Basques and the Basque government. And Spain recently had, had a couple of elections. And the ruling party of the Basque country, the PNV, has run into trouble because their message has been, look, we're good bureaucrats. Things are running well. Please vote for us again. And this is not compelling. I think it's accurate. The more compelling argument is coming from a, a smaller party called Bildu, um, mm-hmm. which is expressing anger and frustration. And many of the policies are the same, but they're connecting to people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. The democratic, the traditional democratic message of vote for us, we're smarter than you is failing. It's a terrible mm-hmm. message. The message has to be, this is what works for us. This is what we need. This is in us together. And to your point about institutions calling them out when they need to be fixed and improved is different than saying the institution needs to be burned down. It's saying that the institution is suffering because of some bad actors. We need to chase the actors out because they're weakening the institution, right? So for example, with the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas doesn't belong there. And the reason he doesn't belong there is because he's using his office, this privileged office, right? The, from which he can't be fired that oversees so much of America's life to, to his own personal gain. And that, that cheats the American people, that cheats the promise we make to each other as a governed and a gov- governors and a governed, yeah. right? It breaks the promise of a fair and independent judiciary by saying, look, I got the cool robe and the big seat. I get a fancy pants RV, mm-hmm. right? Who That's wants to buy this for me? I will be hearing your cases. And I'll you be hearing your cases. Yeah. Right. And, I got this change pants RV and this rich guy helped me out. So best of luck when you come talk to me, even if he is honest and above board and can somehow parse all of this, there's the appearance of impropriety. That's bad for the institution. That's bad for trust, right? right? It's not saying that never attack the IRS. Of course, attack the IRS if they're going after people unfairly, but that's because we need the IRS to be fair and strong and good, right? You've got to, this isn't a Pollyannish, the FBI is always the good guys, right? But it is a recognition that we, we need the FBI. We need effective law enforcement. So let's find ways to make people believe them and trust them mm-hmm. and become better and help protect us. Mm-hmm. And we have to make that case. Advocates have to make that case. Yeah. yeah. We need How do we do it? institutions that deserve our trust. Um, strong, exactly. Strong institutions that deserve our trust. This is our last episode for a while. What are the takeaways between, we're going to assign homework. Good news. When we come back, you'll be turning in your essays and you can't just have heypie.com write it for you, which is a fun chatbot. but have you done heypie.com? I have no idea what you're talking about. So heypie, H-E-Y, pie, like the number.com. It's, it's generative AI, but it's very chatty. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. I should ask it about you. You're kind of lonely, huh? I don't, you're finding I, AIs. You're finding chatty, chatty AIs. Just I don't, to, I don't, just to talk to. I don't get out much. I don't get out much. Yeah, yeah um, I've got this big lonely office. I'm going to wander around my now big office, which I now have a key that works, which is sort of a pleasant change. Walk around the office and wearing Kleenex boxes on my feet, muttering to myself, talking to my talking to my laptop. Hey, pie. How yeah, am I doing? What, you know what I was going to get you for your birthday was a new set of Kleenex, but Kleenex boxes for your feet. <laughs> I'm um, going to slide 11. So <clears throat> if you're planning ahead, what should the people be doing? Go on offense and build institutions. Thanks, uh, everybody. Build, 
Yeah. But look, like building institutions means the iterative work of making things that you have agency over better uh, and doing them, doing it with people, right? Like uh, figuring out what are the things that we already have and how do we strengthen them? Or if we don't have anything at all, how do we start something? And then putting in the iterative work to make it better and make it so that it can stand on its own. That is rarely rocket science. It's rarely new ideas. It's the hard work of implementation to make good but complicated ideas work a bit better. So give, God give damn me, sweat equity. Let's, let's make this super specific because all this is really good and sort of mm-hmm. abstract. I want, we need to build trust in democratic institutions. We have to have institutions worthy of our vision of what they might be. We've got to live up to the always already broken promise of the American ideal. All of those things are true. At the same time, we've got to stop the beatings, right? Mm-hmm. And one guy doing the beating is, is Chairman Jordan. If I want to go after, and Chairman Jordan is engaging these beatings, partially, he may believe what he is saying, but it's also no, true. He that he, no, he doesn't. I'm, I'm going to, like, I've never talked to him about it, right? I'm not going to try to yeah, climb. Yeah, but like, I, I play poker. I know when somebody is obviously bluffing because he likes to bluff every hand. That's Jim Jordan. But it's, but it's also the case that it raises money, gets them on TV, yeah. does all of that kind of stuff, national profile, all these kinds of things. So if you want to make him stop, if people behave their incentives, as we, we agree they do, what specific things can people be doing to bop Chairman Jordan on the nose? That's a metaphor, people. Please do not chase a member of Congress around with a rolled up newspaper. What do we do? What should be? Do you remember the 80s? I can already tell you this is going to be too, too old of a reference, but bring it on, please. They, they made a change to what Social Security and all these old people get really angry and like surrounded cars of members of Congress and these women with them. It was, I'll put it in the footnotes. What can people do to rhetorically bop Chairman Jordan on the nose to persuade him to pick on somebody else his own size? Well, it's Tough outside of his district, obviously, because you know. So, what do you do in the district? So, I mean, in the district, you identify what are the parts of the district, who are the like powerful interests or local leaders in the district with enough authority that he would feel obligated to listen to them, and you try to uh, get them involved. Outside of the district, though, what you all because I think he's mostly performing national level incentives, right? Like, I don't think he's there to try to strengthen his district back home. I think he's there because when he looks in the uh, mirror, he sees a president uh, and what he wants to do is play in national politics. And so I think what you got to do is uh, help to harden all the targets that he thinks are soft targets. And that that means swinging back at him. That means making it so that he faces resistance and ridicule when he picks cheap fights because they think they're cheap. You you make them more expensive. Um, That's broadly what I would say. Right. So I would add two pieces to that, even more specific. It's true that he's not playing to the home district. The only way he's going to lose an election is in a primary because this isn't a way to generate broad votes. But it, but it is true that he's not facing significant discomfort from people about whom he cares back home. Mm-hmm. You want to know who he cares about in his district, go to his finance reports and go to his website. On his website, mm-hmm. he will quote people. Mm-hmm. He'll put his own clips up about what press he's in. He'll brag about things he's doing. He'll have pictures of himself with constituents. Broadly speaking, also in local communities, the people who matter are heads of the local chambers of commerce, local faith leaders, presidents of local colleges and universities, people who either receive federal money, rely on federal money, 
or can wind up in the press. Get them talking points, mm-hmm. right? Get to the head of a local university, not the not some political science professor. We know oh, political science professors are afraid to cross the picket lines in Los Angeles. President of a local university who relies on money from the National Science Foundation to say, hey, chairman, you're picking on all of these federal funding streams, which are funding this university. Without that federal funding, this little economic engine on which our community relies slows way down. Stop doing that, right? It's local faith leaders saying, you know what? We're having a harder time in the pews because all people want to do is argue about national politics. And nobody wants to talk about how we come together spiritually as a community because they look on TV and they see their congressmen arguing about all this other stuff. Stop doing that. Make it locally irritating. Sand in the shoes. Then nationally, simultaneously, you just make fun of them. And, and at this point, as far as I can tell, Chairman Jordan's frustration is with math, mm-hmm. right? So he is calling in these researchers to testify in front of him. And these re- academics count things, weigh things, and measure things. Like there used to be 10. Now there are 15. Huh, right? Or this, like, whatever. And then they sort of speculate about how you go from 10 to 15. These other things happened at the same time. They probably caused the 15, or we use complicated math to get to the 15, right? So Jordan's complaint is with people's ability to count, right? It's, and, and he just doesn't like the numbers they're coming up with. It's, it's like blaming a wrestler who misses a weigh-in on the, the scale industrial complex. Somehow Joe Biden and the global Illuminati are in cahoots with the pack, whatever it is at this point, to like weigh his, no, your wrestler missed the weigh-in because your wrestler isn't training right. Well, when it comes to Jim Jordan and wrestlers, there's a lot that he's uh, has a habit of not noticing. There is that. But it's the point is you don't blame the scale if your wrestler misses a way in. Mm-hmm. Don't blame the math. If Jordan were calling people before him and saying, look, I've been, I've been going over the multivariate regression analysis here, and I've got some real questions. Like, he's not. Mm-hmm. He said, right. 15, holy cow. Pick on him for opposing math. Yeah. Mock him openly. Make it a little uncomfortable. Make it a little uncomfortable back home. A little bit of sand in each shoe. Eventually, the man's going to go find something else to do. Yeah. And, it's, and it's finding out who's on TV doing that. Make, and don't dox them online and threaten to do whatever, pick on them. Yeah. It's, it's red bike guy from you, a you, bunch of weeks ago, yeah, making fun you, of the guys in khakis. You ridicule him in ways that he's going to feel. And it doesn't take now, Finding much. the ways that, are going to feel, that he's going to feel are hard. This is the thing that I've raised in my class before is, because um, I still teach Saul Alinsky, and Alinsky was saying in the early 70s that ridicule is your most potent weapon. And I raised the point with my students that I think that's probably less true in a lot of cases today because an awful lot of our political elites are now shameless. Like it's very difficult to affect Ted Cruz with ridicule because he's a ridiculous person. It's basically impossible to affect Donald Trump with ridicule. He is a ridiculous person. The same is, I think, in many ways true with, with Jim Jordan, that identifying the things that actually sting a bit isn't as easy as it used to be. And that's because we now have political elites uh, who no longer take sort of the noblesse elite of their, of their position very seriously. Like that, that makes it harder to do this, but it's still sort of fundamental principles. You want to be offering sand in the gears, you want to be offering resistance. You want to 
make it hurt enough because people behave their incentives and if they think these are cheap wins that you know get them through the news cycle they're going to do more of that and i think it's not just so the mockery piece i tend to agree with but also but, but do it in a way that isn't oh i can't believe he mispronounced that word or what an ugly tie nobody wears that wouldn't that wouldn't hurt and we're right exactly it wouldn't hurt him it wouldn't hurt him but <laughs> the core of jordan's complaint is he doesn't like what researchers are finding mm-hmm. So make fun of that, yeah. right? I, I'm, I'm sorry you're, you couldn't find the Afi Conan as a kid. Here's a dollar, by the way. That's a How thing. How did you get to Afi Conan? You hide it? Maybe he didn't find it? Maybe he feels bad? I Maybe. feel like that's a reference that isn't going to work for Jim Jordan. Just saying. I'm, but I'm trying to, like, it, it occurred to me. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> the, at, at the point is, the point is, if you're going to mock it, mock him be on message or on point with your mockery. Like the mockery has to advance to the point you're trying to make, which is mm-hmm. researchers are finding what's there. Mm-hmm. If Jim Jordan doesn't like what they're finding, maybe the problem isn't with the looking, it's with what they're finding. Mm-hmm. So so make fun of that. Right. Right. This, rather, also, rather than why won't he wear a tie? Like he's a doofus. You ought to wear it like dress like a yeah. grown-up. Remember the US House of Representatives dress like a friggin' grown-up. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. ship has sailed. Yeah. And it's also so, off message because it's not working on strengthening the institutions, promoting researchers, promoting scientists saying, hey, by the way, July, hottest month ever in, since we've been recording these things. That seems problematic. Let's solve that. Mm-hmm. Like focus on messages that help you get there rather than I can't believe he doesn't wear a tie because that who cares. Yeah. And this also ties in with a, a point that I was uh, talking about a bit last week, which is. I've increasingly over the, the past year and a half we've been recording this, been thinking more and more about um, how the, the core habit should be to identify the frame where what you're arguing for is reasonable and your opponent's stance is clearly ridiculous. Right. And if that, that's clear and resonant, then that's also going to be a thing that tends to make them uncomfortable. Right? Like the case that we're talking about, the, the bit from it that always stands out to me is Jordan and his allies have been complaining at length about how these researchers conducted public health research and then communicated it to the Surgeon General as though that's a bad thing. Like, I'm pretty sure we're okay with that, man. What the hell are you talking about? So that, your point point about like The point of universities is to do that. I want college professors looking at stuff and calling doctors at the CDC going, hey, I saw something. Seems to be hurting children. Maybe we should look into that. Like, that's the frigging point of funding the universities. That's what NIH money is for. Yeah. And, and if he really wants to argue against that, he's welcome to do so. But I'm pretty sure he's going to look like a fucking idiot because, spoiler alert, he's a fucking idiot. And so it's, it's that kind of stuff. And then, again, tactically, my argument would be to bring it back to this article from the Times. It's a diffuse attack, right? Mm-hmm. So it isn't, you know, office hours of Carpenter Lodge 501c3 that's going to do these attacks. It's everybody pushing. If you see an op-ed in a local paper, make sure that everybody in the congressional delegation gets it. Move it around to the state legislature. Hey, did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? Look for people who are saying things who are advancing the message you want, which is Jordan is obviously just trying to get clicks rather than solve problems mm-hmm. and push those around. And then write things like that. Write a letter to the editor. Go to a town hall and go, hey, I couldn't help but notice you on TV picking on some guy because you don't like what he found. Um, our roads still suck. Are you going to fix that or are you 
because I saw you on Fox and you're talking about a political scientist in a different state at a school my kid can't get into. But there was a shooting at my kid's school last week. Can you talk about that? Like do and it's a diffuse, broad attack. And then again, in ways that say he is letting the institution down. Yeah. The institution can be better than this. It should be better than this. It has been better than this. Jim Jordan is an embarrassment to the idea of Congress. Yeah. And Congress is a pretty cool idea. Yeah. The, the job of congressman has to include governing. If George, Jim Jordan isn't interested in doing that, then like that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Like maybe go on Fox instead. He can get a pot. He can get a podcast. Apparently anybody can get those. But will he get the numbers we get? Will he get the numbers we get? <laughs> Man, that would be the real savage takedown of Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, you get fewer listeners than Office Hours of Carbon Loge. That's a challenge. Oh. That's a challenge, listeners. I, I'm going plural I'll, now. I'll, I'll and by the way, we did hear you mocked the YouTube viewers, and we heard from a couple of people. One uh, person. One person. Whoa, no, whoa, two, whoa. two. 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 I two. only heard from one. I think you imagine the other. <laughs> no, there were two. That's what I got. So people, people of the pod, you got anything else, Dave? Do you have any, do you have any, uh, anything else you want to rant at? We've been almost an hour, but it's the last one. So listen to it in chunks, people. I just, since we're going off air for a little while, we're going on hiatus for a while. I just want to reflect over the past year and a half. Elon Musk kept getting dumber. I feel like that's going to keep happening. Ron DeSantis went from the goofus who people think is serious to the goofus who everyone thinks is a goofus. I, I thought that, um, like I, I told a couple people that my strategy for this or my plan for this podcast was to radicalize you. And I thought that that was going to happen largely because I expected the November election was going to go so poorly. We would have to face down that, wow, there's now a bunch of secretaries of state who have said they're going to overturn the elections. Are we still really having faith in this stuff? Like the the real positive note has been, there has been some progress in the right direction that I didn't really expect to come. So I want to reflect on that, that things can get better than CARP fears. And also the path to having strong institutions and a government full of people who actually think governing is their job is still really long and is going to require a lot of work. I'm going to keep walking, working towards that. I know my and your students are going to keep working towards that. I hope our listeners, when they no longer have us to keep them company during their, their dog walks, um, they're very long dog walks, I hope they also find ways in their communities or throughout the country to try to help rebuild strong institutions, have a government worth government that takes it seriously. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. It's I've been reflecting on this a lot as as well, that, you know, what do we do? What do we tell our students? Right. So we've got these really bright students in the School of Media and Public Affairs. The and best. They, the best. They, they do. They are. They come here because they want to change the world. And they look at people like you and me and others with whom we work, adjunct faculty and full-time faculty. We've had some remarkable academic careers and professional careers, Pulitzers, winning campaigns. And they say, I want to be like that. And they show up and, and we're in the moment we're in, right? We're the leading Republican contender for the presidency of the United States has been indicted for attempting a coup and hid national secrets in his bathroom. We say, like, what do you say to him? Mm-hmm. Right? And, and I keep coming back to this idea that we talked ourselves into this, into this moment, we can talk mm-hmm. ourselves into the next moment, right? There wasn't a 
box of democracy people found somewhere. This was thought and wrestled and argued over, and it was complicated and awful trade-offs were made, and it's been getting better and getting better, sometimes getting worse and then getting better, but it's been, we've talked ourselves into this position. We can talk ourselves into a better position. Nothing is inevitable and it is it is up to us. And I think the way to do it is by thinking strategically, mm-hmm. by thinking with a bit of nuance, and also by by working hard and working locally, mm-hmm. right? Talk to your neighbors. Like I love, I was very privileged and lucky, consider myself exceptionally lucky that I've been able to have the political career I've had, but you, working in Congress isn't where I've made the biggest differences in my career. It's working in classrooms, it's working in my community. So please go work in Congress, work in state legislatures. Show up when your city council member has a Zoom meeting about crime in your area. Mm-hmm. You know, volunteer, mentor somebody, just be be smarter and better. Because I think if we don't, the bad guys are going to win. The way the good guys win is if the good guys show up and play. And the, the way I think about it, particularly after 2016, was democracy is fragile. And it requires tending, it requires work, uh, it requires skill. And so that means find ways to help. Because the way things get work is the way things get worse is when we take them for granted and don't put in the work to keep a fragile, worthwhile thing working. On that note, people of the pod, it's been a fun ride. We are temporarily stepping off of it. Uh, we look forward to, to joining you again soon. Dave, thanks for being a co-conspirator for the past, I don't know, eight, nine years, however long we've been doing this. This has been great. Uh, listeners, I promise I'm going to try to annoy Peter at faculty meetings enough that he'll step down early and we can start potting again. That's I, my that, promise to you. I gotta say, it's a pretty low bar. <laughs> if you're an SNPA, drop by and say hi. If not, uh, you know, reach out to us on the socials or, you know, not as you as you may be. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Or, you know, have a bar mitzvah or a wedding and we'll go to it. We'll we have demands, but yes, Later, we'll folks. be there. Bye. <laughs>